Andrew Womack Ministries presents part three of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. This is tape number 110 in our Life for Today Bible Commentary series. On this tape, we continue our teaching through the book of Ephesians. This is now the third tape in the study through the book of Ephesians, and our printed material begins on page 1102. That's 1102. On our last tape, we were teaching in Ephesians chapter 2. We are now beginning with verse 4. Real quickly, let me just summarize a couple of things. Of course, we aren't that far into the book of Ephesians yet, but specifically, I spent a lot of time with the prayer that was prayed in the last part of the first chapter, praying for revelation. And one of the main points that we were making is that we already have everything in Christ. It's already been given to us. The only thing we need, it's not that we need more power, a new touch, uh, more faith, more anointing. What we need is a revelation of what we've already got. And that's what he was praying in the first chapter. So in the second chapter, he begins it by saying, And you hath he quickened with the Lord. The word quickened means made alive. And in the first three verses of the second chapter, he begins to start making the point how we are alive with the Lord, but he describes how it was totally an act of God's grace. And he depicts us here as being dead, having by nature, uh, being by nature a child of the devil. And he describes our total hopeless situation so that all of these wonderful things that he started off praying in the first chapter that we get a revelation of, that it makes it very clear that it didn't come by any virtue of our own. It wasn't something that was earned. It was totally a grace gift. And so in the point of making this grace, he, he really makes his point about how it was the grace of God that did these things by showing that we were worth nothing. We had nothing to offer. We were by nature a child of the de devil. We walked according to the course of this world, etc. And so he describes our hopelessness to showcase how great God's mercy and forgiveness was. So that's the background, and, and in verse 4, where we're beginning today, right after he had described our hopelessness, <clears throat> in verse 4 it says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with him, or with Christ, by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now before we go on, let me just go back to verse 4. It says, But God... Right after it talks about the hopelessness of man's situation, our com complete depravity, then it says, but God. And I tell you, this is taking things a little bit out of context. But this is a true statement and something that I've referred to often, and that is that I go to a scripture like this, and regardless of you know, what my situation is, maybe I'm needing a healing in my body and it doesn't seem to be coming, and the doctor says it's impossible, I was given an incurable uh, I mean, a report of an incurable disease and told that there was no hope. This is right before Jamie and I got married nearly 30 years ago. But you know what? But God. The man said one thing, but God said another. I went to my church. They anointed me with oil, and God supernaturally healed me. The same doctor that pronounced me incurable pronounced me healed, and two days later... See, and then you can look at financial situations. I've been in situations that I guarantee you that people would have said there's no way, there's no hope, but God. And, you know, this little phrase, but God, 
in context here, he's describing our complete hopelessness, and he says, but God, things that are impossible with man are possible with God. And I've taken that concept and I apply it, and I just have renewed my mind to a point that I really believe that regardless of what comes my way, it's not over till it's over. God has an answer, a way to get out and through any situation. And I tell you, this is, like I said, this is taking a little bit of liberty with it, but the point that I'm saying is true. And you need to get this attitude that you you always listen to any report. You look at any negative circumstance, regardless of what facts you have to face. Just always put in there, but God. You need to factor God into the equation. You know, I had so many people say, but, you know, there's just no hope out of this. But it's because they aren't factoring God into it. The God factor changes everything. Praise the Lord. Boy, you could just spend a lot of time. If You know, a person who's a real preacher could take this and make a great series out of it. I'm more of a teacher. But that is really a powerful truth. The only time people are hopeless is when they factor God out of it, when they look at only natural ability and natural resources. When you put but God in there, when you factor God's power and ability, it just changes everything, every situation. Nothing is beyond God's ability and God's power. So in verse 4 it says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. And I think that this is really significant. You know, it's talking about our salvation here and what the Lord did for us. And it's providing us with the motive. It reveals God's motive in saving us. And it says it was because he was rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. That's the motive behind him saving us. And again, we take these things for granted often, but this is really significant because, you know, God, as creator, it could have been possible that he might have felt an obligation or a responsibility to his creation to help get them out of the mess that they made out of his creation. He could have done that, you know, just out of a sense of debt or obligation, not motivated by a great love, an agape type of love, but doing it just out of obligation. He could have done it out of pity. He could have looked at us and thought, these poor, pitiful people really need some help, and there is nobody else but me. I need to do something. He could have had our sense of responsibility, all of these other things. But the Scripture here reveals, and of course, many other places. John 3.16, real uh, popular Scripture many people are aware of. God so loved the world. The thing that motivated God to send His Son for us wasn't pity. It wasn't responsibility. It wasn't obligation. It wasn't any of these things, but rather it was a great love. I tell you, a person who comes to the Lord and accepts salvation and doesn't enter into a love relationship with the Lord, but rather they just receive a transaction, something that's going to spare them the penalties of hell. They're missing what salvation is all about. God didn't save us just to save us from hell, but rather he saved us to bring us into relationship with him. It was because of his love. He wants to communicate his love through the things that he does and through giving of himself to us, and he also wants to experience our love. Salvation is more than forgiveness of sins. It's actually entering into intimate, close, personal relationship with God Almighty. I've got a tape on this entitled Eternal Life. If anybody listening to this tape has never heard that teaching on eternal life, I tell you, I believe that that is something that is necessary for everybody to get hold of. I've got one of my employees here in the office that came to me one day, and 
he'd been listening to a lot of my teaching, and I mean, God has just changed his life. Many of you have heard, heard me mention Jim Lisi. Uh, he's got a healing ministry, and I mean, God's doing some great things with him. But anyway, Jim had been listening to some tapes really growing through him, and he came to me one day, and he says, if you had to pick just one of your teachings to share with somebody, you only had one shot at them, what would you share? And I thought a moment, and then I said, I'd share that tape on eternal life because I believe that's the foundation. If a person could really get that revelation, then every other revelation of the Word, everything that God is, would come as a result of that. And it's built around this same thing that I'm saying here. It's talking about getting a revelation, understanding that God loves us intimately and personal, and that's the relationship that He wants. You know, these things are just said in passing in these passages of Scripture. He's not making a big thing out of it, but really this is just awesome. It's hard to pass over these things quickly when he talks about this. And here we were desperate, but God came on the scene because of his great mercy and his love for us. That's the reason that he saved us. And then in verse 5 it says, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are you saved. You know, it's emphasizing the reason that grace here is brought into this, and he talks about that it's grace, which means it was unearned, undeserved, that we received from God. The reason that this is so appropriate, because he said we were dead in sins. Again, when we use this word from the Bible in religious context, it it's become a cliche, and most people don't think about it. But the point that he's making is a dead person can't save themselves. A person that's dead can't do anything. I mean, if you're dead, you're dead. You can't save yourself. You can't do anything to accomplish it. That's the point that he's making. Because of our sin, we were dead. We were impotent. We were totally incapable of saving ourselves. In the previous verses, we had just described that we were by nature a child of the devil or of wrath, even as others. I mean, we were, we were hopeless. But God, because of his great mercy and his great love towards us, he redeemed us. It was a gift. It was by grace that we are saved. In verse 6, and it says, And he hath raised us up together. Again, you know, you could say that it would have been wonderful if God would have just forgiven us of our sins and have redeemed us from hell. What a tremendous thing that was. We could have rejoiced over that. We could have had hallelujah parties. We could have praised God forever for just not going to hell. But that is not all that salvation is. It is much more than that. He not only forgave us of our sins, but he raised us up together with Christ, has made us sit together in heavenly places. If you go back to the last part of the first chapter, it says that Christ is now above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. And he says that he's also put all of these things under his feet. And I explained that that was talking about the body of Christ. So if we are raised with him and seated with Christ in heavenly places, this not only depicts the fact that we are more than just forgiven, we are actually in relationship with God, but we are on the throne. We are ruling and reigning with Christ. This is making reference to our authority as believers I tell you, the Lord did not just provide us with the minimum salvation that it took to make us escape hell. But he literally provided us with everything that Jesus has. As Jesus said over in John chapter 14, verse 12, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me, the works that I do, shall he, re shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father." 
he was saying, you know, that not only did he just forgive us, but he gave us the same power, the same authority, the same anointing, all of these things. Whatever is true of Jesus is now true of us in our born-again spirit. Boy, that is tremendous. That is really more than anybody could have ever hoped for. You know, if we would have had to go to God somehow, if we could have approached him and have petitioned him and have asked him for salvation, nobody would have felt worthy to ask for everything that was granted us in salvation. We would have asked, oh, God, just please forgive us of our sins. Don't send us hell. We would have compromised. We would have asked for the minimum, knowing that we didn't deserve any of it. Boy, the Lord, he abounded towards us. He went further than any of us could have ever dreamed. Not only forgave us, but gave us everything that is true of Jesus is now true of us. That's hard. That's hard to believe, but that is exactly what the Word of God teaches. That's what Paul is referring to here. You'll notice here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, it talks about us being raised together with Christ. And it says that we have been quickened together with him. We have been raised together. We have been seated together in heavenly places. All of these terms right here happen to somebody who is dead in trespasses and sins. We were incapable of doing this. It's only through God's grace. And this fact that it says that it was together is stressing this unity, that all of it is dependent upon Christ. We did not accomplish any of these things by our own virtue or power. Also, the terms that he uses here, it says that he has made us sit together in Ephesians 2, 6. In verse uh, 6, it also says that we have been raised. And in verse 5, verses 1 and 5, it says that we have been quickened. All of these words that were used there are what, in the grammatical sense, it's called the aortist tense, which means that it's indicating something that has, God has already accomplished in Christ and something that isn't yet off in the future, but it's an accomplished, done deal. It's already been done. Now, somebody struggle. I know some people struggle with this, about how can I be seated with Christ? Because we limit our existence to our physical senses, what we can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. I don't know how to explain this, but I've accepted it. I believe that these things are reality. They're in the aortist tense. That means they've already been accomplished. This is not just something that is in principle. It's not just... Uh, you know, a positional type of thing. It is a reality. My spirit man is seated with Christ, raised with Christ, and I have been quickened. I am alive just like Jesus is alive. These things are already past tense deals. And if you can ever get hold of that, then praise God. Instead of just believing that God can do it, you'll start believing that God has done it. And if you are truly resurrected with Christ, then you'll begin to start experiencing some of those same victories. In verse 7, it says that in the... Here's the reason that he did it, or the purpose. It says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. And so it says up there in verse 5, it says, or in verse 4, the, the motive behind God bringing redemption to us was because of his richness of mercy and his great love for us in this verse it's stating his purpose his purpose was so that he could show to the world his greatness and his love and his kindness through the goodness that he gives unto us that's what he's wanting to do in other words he's wanting to show off he's wanting to just shower us with blessings and show the world how much he loves us god's like a 
proud parent or a grandparent that wants to show everybody the picture of their of his kids. Now, I know some people may think that's terrible to refer to God that way, and but really what I'm trying to say is that he loves us with that kind of intensity. He just loves to shower gifts on us. I don't know if you've ever had a parent or a grandparent that loved you and you saw the joy that they got out of giving, or maybe you with your own children. Have you know you enjoy giving to them at Christmas and giving gifts at birthdays and stuff like that? You get more out of it than the kids do. Lots of times, the kids, after 30 minutes or whatever, they're playing with the box instead of the toy that you give them. But you know that the way that it makes their eyes light up, the excitement that they have, boy, you get blessed out of that. The Lord has that kind of attitude, He's wanting to shower us with blessings and gifts. Most people don't see God that way, but that's what Paul is describing right here. He says that this was His purpose. In saving us, he did it for the purpose that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Here's the way that the Living Bible translates that. It says, and now God can always point to us as examples of how very, very rich his kindness is as shown in all he has done for us through Jesus Christ. Well, that's amazing. Again, it would have been wonderful if he'd have saved us and just not have punished us and then forgotten us. That would have been wonderful. But much more than that, brings us into closeness relationship and actually enjoys, actually takes pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. That's what it says in Psalms thirty-five twenty-seven. It says, let God be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. I know that there's people listening to me that do not have that kind of a revelation of God. You see God as someone who may have you know, been a benefactor to you in the sense that you didn't go to hell and he provided something, but you've never entered into the joy of that relationship. You haven't understood his love, his mercy. But boy, these verses are describing some wonderful things here. You need to get a revelation that God not only has tolerated you, but he actually likes you and he wants to shower good things on you. In verse 8, it says, For by grace... Are you saved through faith? Somebody might say, but I just can't understand this. How could God do that? It's because of grace. Grace means unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor. This isn't because you deserved it. It's not because God looked down someday and saw us and said, oh, I just can't live without them. I've got to have them. Boy, they would make my life complete. I tell you, there was nothing but problems. Nothing but problems. This world was corrupted, we were defiled, we were so unholy compared to God's standard of holiness that really there was nothing for God to gain out of this except sinful, depraved humanity. It is just because of God's great love towards us, not because of our great goodness. God didn't save us because of our goodness, he saved us because of his goodness. That's what it's saying here. It was by grace that you were saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, these verses right here, I could literally spend hour upon hour with this. Matter of fact, I've got a tape entitled Grace and Faith, and a book, the very first book that I ever wrote was on this subject. It's entitled Grace and Faith. And it, it the tape is an hour and a half's worth of teaching right here on Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. I've also got a tape entitled The Faith of God that is based on this verse right here. So there's a lot of material. I can't cover all of it, but l- real quickly, let me say here that you are not saved by grace alone. Now, in all honesty, putting this in context, verse 5 up here does say in parenthetical phrases there at the end of the verse, it says, by grace you are saved. 
So I'm not going to split hairs over this. I don't want to make it sound like anybody who says you're saved by grace is all wrong. Paul used that same terminology in context here. But in verse 8, he gives a little greater clarification on it. The actual truth, the way you're saved, is by grace through faith. In other words, there has to be grace and faith present. There has to be a combination. See, grace is what God does. Faith is what we do. Now, it needs a little more explanation than that, but there has to be a combination. It's not just God's grace that produces salvation. See, if a person misunderstands this, this is why a lot of people have gone to extreme opposites in doctrine. There are some people that preach a sovereignty of God, a grace of God, to the degree that they say, matter of fact, it's called hyper-Calvinism. Calvin is a guy that kind of... uh, put this system of theology in writing and popularized it back in the 1500s. And Calvin came to the point, you know, of saying that it doesn't matter what you do, you are either predestined to be saved or predestined to be damned. You are predestined to failure or predestined to success. Everything that happens in your life is God-ordained. There is no such thing as you making mistakes. God orders and controls everything that happens in your life. And he does it for a purpose, to conform you, to mold you, etc. Now, that lives on to varying degrees today. Matter of fact, I really believe that that is one of the most popular doctrines in the body of Christ, and it's wrong. Now, there is partial truths here, but I hadn't got time to go into all that. But I would say that as a whole, that is one of the most damaging doctrines that I am aware of in people's lives. Because it makes them totally passive. They say, well, it really doesn't matter what I do. A person who totally believes that can actually sit in front of the television set and pig out, become a couch potato, and then if their life falls apart, if they don't have a job because they're too lazy to go work, if they don't ever pray, if they don't seek God, if nothing ever happens, then they can all write it off to, well, it must be God's will because nothing could happen but what God allowed it. And that just is not true. That's not what the Word of God teaches. Now, see, that's an extreme. Those are... And this happens when you take something like just grace and say you're saved by grace. In other words, it's all up to God. I have nothing to do. I can't save myself. Well, it's true that you can't save yourself, but does that mean that you have nothing to do with salvation? No, because the scripture here says that you're saved by grace through faith. Now, faith is something that we do. Faith came from God, and I'm going to be dealing with that in just a moment. It's not just human faith. It's not your faith. It's a gift from God. But nonetheless, you have to exercise it. Now, many people are confused on what faith means and what it is. Some people think faith are the things that I do to earn the favor of God. That is not a true definition of faith. Faith is not something you do to move God. People will say things like faith moves God. My little simple definition of faith is that faith, based on the Word of God, is just simply your positive response to what God has already provided by grace. Man, that that's awesome. Now, that may not ring your bell. It may not mean much to you. But, boy, that, that says volumes to me. It took me years and years to come up with that perspective on what faith is. Faith is just your positive response to what God has already provided for you by grace. See, true victory in the Christian life is dependent upon God's grace plus your faith. You have to respond positively to what God has done. Now, if you try and separate grace and faith, 
you come up with error on either extreme. If you emphasize grace so that everything is totally up to God, you have no say-so in it. You cannot deny or release the ability of God. It's just God's choice, whatever happens to you. That's error. And on the other hand, if you take faith to the point that you tell people, man, you can do this, you've got authority, you get up there, and they actually take that to the point that they feel like they are moving God, that they are obligating God. They can grab God's arm, in a sense, and twist it and make God perform because God said this, and I believe it, and I'm going to make it happen. That's wrong, too. See, faith, with without being directed and... and uh, Dependent upon God's grace is error. And grace, without recognizing that we have an acceptance or a rejection, we have the privilege of either accepting or rejecting what God has provided for us by grace, well, then that's error, too, if you don't look at it that way. If you just talk about it's totally up to God, neither one of those are true. You know, it's just like sodium and chloride. Both of those chemicals, if you take them in sufficient quantities, either sodium can kill you or chloride could kill you. But if you put them together and mix them in the proper way, you come up with salt, which you have to have to live. It is a necessary ingredient, which if you don't have salt, your body won't work and you'll die. So sodium and chloride mixed together is a life-giving force. Separately, they're poisons. It's the same thing with grace and faith. If you emphasize grace to the point that you don't understand faith, then you have a poison that will make, render you inactive and it will keep you from being motivated and doing anything. You'll just say, well, it's totally up to God, which is not true. On the other hand, if you take faith and don't understand grace, that God has already provided it, that your faith is just a positive reaction, if you don't look at it that way, well, then faith becomes something that becomes a yoke and a bondage, and it'll put you back under legalism. It'll put the burden of salvation on you, and you feel like, I've got to move, God. I've got to go in and through my faith. I've got to make this happen. And that becomes oppressive. And I guarantee you, you cannot live effectively that way. Just like this scripture is saying, you're saved by grace through faith. Now, grace is what God does for us, and it's consistent towards everybody. It's independent of what you deserve. It's independent of your actions. And the scripture says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, it says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. So that shows you that God's grace has come unto all men, and it came bringing salvation. That means that God has offered salvation to everyone. Hitler had God's grace provided for him. According to 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus is the propitiation, that means the payment, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, speaking about those who accept him, Christians, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus provided for the sins of the whole world. Hitler's sins were paid for by the death of Jesus, and the grace of God brought that unto Hitler. And I guarantee you, some way or another, God touched Hitler's heart, gave him an opportunity to believe and receive, because the scripture says in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God was willing for Hitler to be saved. It is not God that damned Hitler and that willed for him to be the person that he was. God had a perfect plan for Adolf Hitler's life, but Hitler had a choice. See, it's not only God's grace 
that saves. If it was only God's grace, Hitler would have been saved because the provision was made, the propitiation was made for his sins, and the grace that brings salvation came unto Hitler. But Hitler did not respond, as far as anybody knows. He did not respond positively to God's grace. He didn't mix faith with God's grace. And so God's grace in a sense, was wasted on Hitler. What was provided for Hitler, just the same as you and I, independent of his actions, regardless of how bad he was, salvation was offered unto him, but he rejected it. He didn't put faith in it. And so, therefore, it didn't accomplish anything. See, you've got to respond positively to God. Now, on the other hand, looking at it from the faith standpoint, a person who is just trying to obtain something from God by faith but doesn't understand that that faith doesn't make God do anything. It doesn't move God. Like, for instance, when a person starts believing and saying, I'm believing that you're healing me and I'm laying hold of this promise and God, I'm not letting go until you heal me. An attitude like that is going to get you nothing. Because, see, you think that it's your faith that's making God provide the healing. The truth is... Like it says over in 1 Peter 2.24, by his stripes you were healed. That healing was already accomplished 2,000 years ago. God, by grace, made a, a provision for your healing before you were ever born, before you'd ever done anything good or bad. So it was totally by God's grace that it's done. Your faith doesn't make God heal you. Your faith just reaches out and appropriates what God has already provided for you by grace. Now, see, if you don't understand this, then what will happen is people will start trying to manipulate God and get God to do their bidding by using faith. I've known people that have done this. I'm sure I've used this example somewhere during this Life for Today series. There was actually a group of people in Arlington, Texas. A woman started a a quote-unquote Bible school there. She was into the faith teaching, which, again, there, there is truth there. And I consider myself a faith person, but there have been a lot of abuses. And this woman was into the abuse of it. And she took Mark eleven twenty four that says, Whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. And she desired to marry Kenneth Copeland. And so she, in the spirit, she actually got dressed up in a wedding dress, went through a wedding ceremony, and in the spirit, quote, unquote, married Kenneth Copeland. And the, the minor fact that Gloria Copeland was his wife and married to him? Well, she dealt with that by just cursing Gloria and commanding Gloria to die and get out of the way because she had this scripture, whatsoever I believe, if I mean desire, if I believe I receive when I pray, then it's mine. And she stood on Mark eleven twenty four to do that. You know the thing that's wrong with that? It, the thing that's wrong is faith can't make God do anything. You can't take Mark eleven twenty four and plan the perfect bank robbery and go out and succeed at being a crook because you said, I confess it with my mouth and believe it in my heart that I've got it. See, God didn't provide being a thief for you through his grace. God did not provide for that woman to marry Kenneth Copeland and to curse his wife and kill her and get out of the way. That wasn't provided in the atonement of the Lord Jesus. So since grace didn't provide it, your faith can't make it happen. You can't make God do anything. Faith doesn't move God. Faith doesn't make God do anything. Faith just receives what God has already provided. 
Now, if you can get an understanding of this, and if you can combine grace and faith together, then it takes the struggle out of the Christian life. When it comes to receiving healing, see, once I got this revelation and I began to understand this, instead of me feeling like, oh, no, I've got to get in and begin to start confessing the word, I've got to get in and speak the word, study the word, I've got to start praying hard, I've got to do this and do this and do this to get God to heal me, instead, it, it allowed me to rest. I began to start approaching it this way and saying, Father, thank you that by your grace I've already been healed. It says, by your stripes we were healed, 1 Peter 2.24. It's already done. Father, thank you that your grace has already provided it, that you've already done everything that it takes for me to be healed. Now I just believe it. And then I would confess that I was healed, not to get God to heal me, but because I believed I was healed. My confession became a byproduct of my faith, uh, a way of just appropriating what was already mine. If you can understand what I'm saying, this takes the struggle out of the Christian life. I know that there are many people listening to this tape right now who you believe that it's God's will to heal, but you're trying to get healed on your faith. You have somehow or another adopted this attitude that my faith makes me worthy. Through my faith, I'm going to reach out and God, I'm going to grab this and I'm going to take it. And you are somehow or another trying to, you think that God is looking at you and when you hit a high enough level of faith, then God responds to your faith. But that's not true. Faith is not something that makes God respond to us, but rather faith is our response to what God has already provided. It's just a confidence, an assurance that God, your word says, I've already been healed. Praise God, I'm healed. So now I confess that I'm healed. Now I'm going to rebuke the devil. Now I'm going to talk to my body. Now I'm going to do whatever I've got to do because it is true. I am healed. See, when you do that, it actually strengthens my faith. There are some people that teach that you have to have faith in your faith. Well, I believe that you need to have faith in God's grace, not faith in my faith. I don't have faith in myself. I have faith in the fact that God has put within me a new nature and I'm a born-again person and I've got power and authority, but I've got faith in what God has already done. I've got, I put faith in God's grace. Anyway, I could spend literally hours on this. Again, I encourage you to get that book entitled Grace and Faith or the tape entitled that if you need, if you would like more information on that. But this is a powerful truth right here, and I think that this is where a lot of people miss it. Some people take the scriptures and only talk about grace and look at it from that side and they wind up being passive and thinking, well, it's just totally up to God. And there's some benefit to that because it, you do allow God to be the author and the finisher of your faith. You don't become self-sufficient through that. There are some positive traits, but there are some negative things too. Again, it'll kill you if you just take grace only and forget that there also has to be responsibility on our part. But on the other hand, there's some people that just talk about our part and what we must do and forget that we don't make God do anything by our holiness or the things that we do. All that is is just a way of reaching out and receiving what has already been provided by God's grace. If you, if you focus on faith to that extreme, you'll wind up in a ditch over there. I know I've used this illustration many times, but... If you're driving down a dirt road, it has a ditch on each side. If you start in the one ditch, the tendency is to turn so far the other direction that you'll overcompensate and go in the ditch in the other side of the road. See, it's not that one ditch is better than the other. If you're in the ditch, you're off the road and you're in trouble, you're broke down, you need help. 
The best way is to go right down the middle. And see, there's some people that have seen the abuses of faith, and they say, well, boy, I've seen people, it just makes them legalistic. They feel like they've got to produce everything. They work their fingers to the bone. They get depressed and discouraged. They aren't trusting and relying on God. They're trying to do it through their own effort. And those things have happened. I've seen that happen a lot. And so you see abuses of faith. So there's some people that just go totally the other direction, and they say, nope, it's just totally God. I'm not going to take any responsibility anymore. I don't have anything to do with it. It's just 100% God. Well, you're going to hit the ditch on the other side of the road. And then there's some people that see people who've expounded God's grace that way to the point that they see that they don't seek God, they don't have any desire to do anything, and they know that that is not what God is saying. And so they go the other direction, and they get into all of their works. You can hit a ditch on either side of the road. Either grace by itself or faith by itself will put you into bondage if you don't combine them. This verse is saying that you are saved by grace through faith. It's the combination of the two, not one or the other. Praise God. Please get that tape and book and get more information on that. In this same verse, in verse 8, it says you are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. Most people would say that when it says that not of yourselves, it's saying that that salvation is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, that certainly is a true statement that our salvation is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. It's a grace gift that we just appropriate and receive by faith. That's a true statement. But I personally believe that this also applies to the faith that it was speaking of. When it says you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves, I believe that it also applies to that faith that you used for salvation was not of yourself, but it was a gift of God. Now, this is very significant to me. And like I said, I've got a tape entitled The Faith of God that will give an hour's and a half worth of teaching on this one subject. But see, when I first began to start discovering faith, I believe that most people would acknowledge and agree with the fact that faith is powerful, that faith will release and appropriate what God has provided for us by grace. There are many examples of faith. Most people see the power of faith. But then when it comes to actually walking it out, there's a lot of people that just feel like, well, I know that faith works, but my faith is so puny. I just don't have the faith that I should, etc., that's not what the Word of God teaches. The Scripture teaches in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, it says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. Faith is a fruit of the Spirit. When you got born again, God deposited His faith in your heart. And I believe that that's what this is talking about in Romans 2.8. That when you got born again, it took God's grace, that's what He did, salvation, He provided it for you, and your response had to be faith. And the faith that you used for salvation wasn't your faith. It wasn't human faith. It was supernatural faith. God literally had to share his supernatural God type of faith with us so that we could be born again. Now, you can see that there is what I call a human faith, and then there is a supernatural God kind of faith. Because in, in the human sense... I've heard people say before, it's faith to sit in a chair that you've never sat in. Well, that's a human faith because, see, that's based on your sense knowledge. It's based on what you can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. 
If I tried to get you to sit in a chair that had four legs, but one of them was broken and therefore the thing was leaning to one side and it looked like it was about to fall apart, if you saw that, I guarantee you, you would not sit in a chair it based on just what you can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel because you'd say that's not stable. I can't sit in it. But when it comes to believing God for salvation, you're believing for things that you can't see. You're believing in God whom you've never seen. You're believing in the devil whom you've never seen. You're believing in heaven and hell and sins and sins being forgiven. You're believing in unseen, intangible objects. And yet, how can you believe for something that you can't see with a human faith? You can't do it. So see, it takes a God kind of faith. In Romans chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, it says that God calls those things which be not as though they are. See, God's faith doesn't have to see it to believe it. God says things even before there is physical manifestation or evidence of it. So God's kind of faith is not limited to what you can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. So when it came to being born again, you had to receive this God-given, God kind of faith to be born again. You couldn't get born again with human faith. So you had to have faith imparted unto you. How did that happen? Well, the Bible says in Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's also the reason that 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, I believe it is, or 23 right there, it says that you are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed by the word of God that lives and abides forever. God's word has to come unto you for you to get born again because God's word contains his faith. God releases his faith unto you, this supernatural type of faith unto you through his word. Every time you hear the word of God, when you're listening to these tapes and when you're hearing me explain and talk about God's word, supernatural God kind of faith is being released. Now, you may or may not receive it and appropriate it and use it, but it is being released. If your heart is open, God's faith can literally be released into you through his words. And that's what happens at the initial born-again experience. Somebody shared the truth of God with you and told you that you could be born again. And through that word of God, God gave you his faith. And then you turned around and used God's very faith to receive his salvation. You responded positively to what he said because God quickened you and gave you the ability to believe in things that you couldn't see, taste, hear, smell, or feel. Boy, that's awesome. Now, that shows a lot of things. It shows how depraved we were that we did. We couldn't even believe what God had provided for us. God had to share his faith with us so that we could even believe and receive. But it also says this to me, that if God gave me his supernatural faith to get born again, if it wasn't just human faith, if it wasn't my faith that produced my salvation, then that means that I have a supernatural faith that was imparted unto me. See, it didn't come just for a moment so I could believe and then it leaves, but rather it's an abiding part of me. God gave me his faith, and I may not use it, I may not be operating in it, but the truth is that if I am born again, which I am, then God deposited his faith in me. I couldn't have got born without it. You can't get born again with just human faith. You are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. That faith isn't of yourselves. It was a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God has given each one of us supernatural faith. We don't need to pray for faith. We don't need to ask God for more faith. What we need to do is begin to start learning how to use what 
God has already given us. It even says in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, that God has dealt to every man the measure of faith, not a measure of faith. I don't have one degree of faith and you have another. God gave all of us the same faith. Now, it is true that some people use more faith than others. You could say that some people have great faith in the sense that some people use a lot of the faith that's been given them and other people only have little faith. But the truth is, technically, all who were born again were given faith. It took that supernatural God kind of faith to be born again. So all of us have God's supernatural faith on the inside of us. We just need to learn how to use it. Boy, that's encouraging to me. When I saw that, I tell you, that gave me much more confidence and boldness because I realized that, God, I'm not doing this through my effort. It's not me in my ability trying to believe you, but I believe that I have been given a supernatural ability to believe God. It's there. I just have to start exercising it. You know, it's like a person who has to exercise. If if you saw a person who's a weightlifter and has these bulk muscles, and I mean huge and masculine, and if you thought, well, they just have something that I don't. No, what they have is they have developed something that you haven't. If you were to lift weights and eat and exercise and do the things that they did, did you know that most of us, unless you've got something physically wrong with you, God has made all of us so that we could bulk up and we could build these muscles. It's not that we don't have them. It's just that we haven't developed it. Now, see, once you understand that, then if that's where your focus is, if that was really what you wanted to invest your time and effort into, you could become a muscle-bound person. Well, it's the same thing, see, when it comes to faith. Sometimes we see people that operate in a lot of faith, and we think, well, I know that faith works. Faith is wonderful, but the sad thing is I just don't have what they have. If you accept that thinking, well, then it's going to prohibit you from ever developing what you've got. But if you looked at somebody who exhibited great faith and you said, praise God, I've got faith. I've got the measure of faith is what it says in Romans twelve three. So if that's what faith is producing in their life, then I can do it too. It's just a matter of me exercising, developing it, growing in this faith. It's not your faith that's growing. It's you that's growing in your ability to use it and release it. Praise God. Boy, those are powerful truths. Those things took me many, many years to learn what I just said to you in those brief moments. Again, I want to encourage you to get this tape entitled The Faith of God. It will explain that and go into more detail. And this is one of the very first things the Lord ever showed me. And I promise you, it's a life-changing truth. It could totally change your perspective if you understand this. So I've spent maybe 20 minutes on the uh, eighth verse here of Ephesians chapter 2, and I've got at least three hours of teaching just in these two tapes, and I've got a lot more that refer to that. So I encourage you to please delve into this and get this revelation of what it means to be saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Sometimes people will take the principles that I've been talking about and say, well, yes, that's the way that you get born again, but then after you're born again, you got to work, you got to perform, and they fall back into trying to earn the things from God. That, that's not what he's saying. The word salvation here applies to more than just forgiveness of sins. It's, it's repl- talking about uh, healing. It's talking about prosperity. It's talking about deliverance, all of these things. It even says right here in this verse that it is a gift of God. A gift is something that you don't earn. 
When somebody gives you a gift, you don't say, oh, this is wonderful. Now I've got to pay you back for this. I've got to do something for you. That's not the appropriate response. The right response is just to say thank you. But yet a lot of people think that the initial forgiveness of sins is a gift, but then you have to work and earn everything else. That's not the way it works. God has provided everything for you by grace, not only forgiveness of sins, but also healing, prosperity, deliverance, joy, peace, victory, success in your business, and on and on you could go. These things are already graced gifts, something that you receive. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no effort, because you have to believe. If you truly believe that God has prospered you, then instead of filing you know, bankruptcy and going that route, if you believe, well, then act like you believe. You may have to stand there in the face of adversity sometimes and say, Father, I do believe and wait on him to give you direction and what to do and things like that. There's things that you need to do, but instead of your effort earning something from God, it's just that you're responding to God, whatever he says. God, I believe that you've already provided this for me. It's a gift of God. You do not earn salvation. You know, I've got a quote here from Kenneth S. Wiest. He says that the word saved here in the eighth verse that it's in the past perfect tense, which what that means is that it was something that has already been completed in the past, but it continues to have present tense results. And here's the way that he translates this eighth verse. It says, For by grace have you been saved in time past completely through faith with the result that your salvation persists through present time, and this salvation is not from you as a source. Now, that's a little bit wordy, but he's reflecting, see, this past perfect tense of these verbs here, and he's getting this across, that salvation is something that's already done. If it's already done, how can you earn it if it's already done? Of course, you can't. And that's the point that he's getting across. Also, I, you need to see here that um, the word in the ninth verse here where it says that it was not of works lest any man should boast. This is just once again amplifying the fact that it was God's grace. It was something that God provided by grace. The only thing you had to do was just believe it and receive it. It was not of works lest any man should boast. If a person truly understands salvation by grace through faith, God has designed it in a way that it excludes boasting. A person who's going around bragging about what they've done is a person that does not have a revelation of God's grace. They're, oper- they're thinking that God is using them or blessing them through some virtue of their own, not understanding that it's, it's totally a grace gift that all of these things are happening. In verse 10 it says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. There is a huge difference in being created unto good works and being created through good works. Now, that's the way most people actually believe this. Most people relate to God not so much in the initial born-again experience, but then after they get born again, they think that everything they receive from God is through their good works. In other words, they have to earn it. According to how holy they live, then God will respond and answer their prayers. But that's not so. You were created by God unto good works. It's God's purpose. It's God's plan for you. It's a byproduct of a relationship with Him. It is not a means to relationship with Him. Works, 
holiness, effort, comes out of salvation. They do not produce salvation. You know, the word that was translated, uh, workmanship, right here in this, um, what is that, the 10th verse, no, the ninth verse, where it says, we are his workmanship created in Christ. The word that was translated workmanship there, it literally means to make, and it signifies what is manufactured, a product, a design produced by an artisan. And the word, I can't pronounce it, but it's spelled, uh, and this is Greek, P-O-I-E-M-A. That word is very close to the word we have of poem. Actually, that's where the word poem comes from, is this Greek word. In other words, this is describing us as God's poem or his creation. We are his workmanship. It's talking about like an artist. You know, a, a, a writer writes a poem. No poem has ever written itself. Words don't just arrange themselves and come together randomly like that. It takes a creator to make it. Can you imagine of a poem somehow or another boasting of, look what I did. Look at the great work that I wrote. No poem writes itself. It has to have a creator. No picture, no masterpiece ever painted itself. It has to be painted by a creator. If somehow or another a piece of paper or a painting could have life and speak, and if they begin to praise itself and look what I did, look at the masterpiece that I am, I guarantee you, you could refute that in a hurry because no painting ever painted itself. It has a creator. Well, in the exact same way, it's just as foolish for any of us to ever boast in our accomplishments and look what I did. Man, if there's any good happening through you, if God has used you and if your life has changed and if something has happened, I guarantee you it is because of the Creator that made you, that fashioned you. You are His workmanship. The good that's in you came from God, not from you. If you have been able to invent something, it's because of the creative ability that God gave you. If you're able to succeed in some area and make a living and, and be successful, it's because of God's supernatural talents and ability that's flowing through you. It's not you in yourself. Now, I know that there's a lot of people that don't believe that. Because, for one thing, they see people prosper who are not living godly and not uh, submitted unto God. Well... There's a number of answers to that. One of them is that some of the things we think, some of the things we think are prosperity or, and success truly are not. For instance, there's some people who are called quote unquote actors who have a lot of fame and money, and people say, "Look how successful they are." And I guarantee you, it's not God's ability. They're doing it through pornography. They're doing it through vulgarity. They're doing it through their own ability, and it's not. It's not even anything that I would consider decent or good. It's just because of all of the other perverts out there that it like that kind of stuff. They get this acclaim and fame. I wouldn't consider them a success at all. I'd consider them maybe infamous, but uh, not what I'd consider famous. Now, there are some people that can actually succeed, and they have talents and ability, and it's because even a lost man can take his God-given talents and ability and develop them and even though they may not give God the credit, God still makes his son rise on the just and on the unjust and makes sins reign on the just and the unjust. He gives gifts and talents to every person that's born, not just those who accept him. And so there are some people who can use their God-given talents, but they aren't receiving the fullness of the success as if they were to humble themselves and really yield themselves to God. You can go back in history 
and prove that when people come alive to God, that creative ability explodes on the inside of them. I, I, I mean, you can go back to the Reformation. Prior to the Reformation is when they went through the Mid-Ages, the Medieval Ages. It was called the Dark Ages. And there was, uh, I mean, an oppression. People were struggling. But when the Renaissance came, it came in conjunction with the Reformation. When people began to turn to God and, uh, and God began to start having relationship and having more of an impact on people's lives, you find that inventions and things just exploded. You can look at some of the people's lives, like John Wesley, who was mildly used of God as a preacher, but this guy was also an inventor and wrote books on home medicine remedies using the herb-type things that were used by doctors for over 200 years. He had some thoughts about electricity. He wrote these things down way ahead of his time. When a person has God in their life, you'll find a creativity released in them that they don't have before. See, we are his workmanship. Our abilities, our talents, regardless, you know, some exceptions or somebody that you may think, I'm saying that as a whole, God is the one that gives us our abilities and talents, the works that come through us, the good that comes through us. We are his workmanship. And because of that, there's no room for us to boast. It's God that did it in us. That's the point that Paul's making here. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, not through good works, but unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Well, I could take this 10th verse and preach on this forever. This is a powerful truth, but God has a perfect plan for everyone. He has created us for a purpose. We are not just a happening on our own. God didn't just wind us up and turn us loose, and it's totally our choice as to what we do. Now, God has given us a choice, but he's trying to encourage us to make the choices that conform to his plans for our life. God has a plan for each one of us. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. God has thoughts towards us, and his thoughts are good. He has a plan for us, an expected end. God had a purpose in creating us. In the same way that a painter doesn't just sit down. I'm not talking about a modern art painter that is just nothing but a mess, and they call that art. I'm talking about somebody who's really a master at painting. They don't sit down and just aimlessly paint things. But they have a purpose. They have an idea already in mind when they sit down at that canvas and start painting. When a person sculpts something, Michelangelo said that he actually could see in a piece of stone a work, and all he did was chip out all of the things away from what was already there. Did you understand that? He basically, see, he could see that there was already a form in that piece of marble, and he chipped away all of the things that didn't conform to that right form. Now, again, that's just his way of looking at it, but the point that he's making is, see, he had a goal when he started to work on that. He already had a purpose. When God created us, when we were born again, God's got a purpose for your life. God didn't, you didn't happen. You didn't evolve. Man, you were created by God. You were designed. There is a purpose. There is a plan for your life. You were created for that purpose. Now, God isn't going to automatically make it come to pass. God's grace has already planned a great, wonderful plan for you that's greater than anything you could ever imagine. But your faith has to be involved to make this come to pass. God, by grace, has provided it. There's a perfect plan. You are suited for just really one thing 
But you are by faith going to have to renew your mind. You're going to have to start relating to God, growing and understanding Him, submitting unto Him, letting God lead you. There are some things that you need to do in faith to appropriate what God has already provided for you by grace. But this is very encouraging to me. It ought to be encouraging you to find out that God created you with the purpose. He created you unto good works, and He's ordained that you should walk in them. Boy, these are powerful, powerful statements. In verse 11, he says, Wherefore, remember. And before I get into what he talks about remembering, I've got a footnote here that I think is really important. A little bit, not a lot of detail, about the power of memory. You know, there are three times over in Second Peter that Peter talks about stirring us up, stirring up our pure minds by putting us in way of remembrance. I actually have a tape out that talks about the power of, of memory. And you need to get hold of that and understand this. Our memory is a super, super powerful force. If you could just imagine what it would be like to have amnesia. All of us have probably heard or seen stories about somebody who had amnesia. And I mean, it can radically change your life in just a second. You can totally lose your identity, your confidence. Everything changes. We don't understand, really, how much we use our memory. It's a very powerful force. Life would not be the same if you were to lose all of your memory. It would totally change your personality. It would totally change the direction of your life and everything else. Now, when it comes to Christian things, when it comes to our relationship with the Lord, sad to say, we don't remember the way that we should. That's the reason that the Lord told us in Psalms 103, it says, Forget not all his benefits. It was a command. The reason God commanded us not to forget is because you will forget if you don't make a deliberate effort to remember. That's what Paul is saying here. Wherefore, remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh. In other words, he's saying that you need to remember what it was like before you entered into this love of the Lord. You need to remember how desperate your situation is. And the point that he's bringing this up is he's been talking about that you're saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know how to keep you from getting swelled up with pride and beginning to ever think that, hey, this is because of some virtue on my own that God has done all of these things for me. One of the things that will keep you humble is remembering. Over in Isaiah chapter 51 The scripture there says, you that follow after righteousness, it says, look unto the rock from which you are hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you are digged. In other words, looking to the rock is talking about that we have been, uh, you know, chiseled out of the Lord Jesus. We were raised together with him. We are now with him. We are a part of that rock, the Lord Jesus. But then when it says, look to the hole of the pit from which you are digged, that means look at the mess that you were in before the Lord found you. You need to remember both of these things. You need to see who you are in Christ, the good things, the potential. You need to see those things to encourage you. But at the same time, you need to remember what you were like before God found you. It'll keep you from ever getting puffed up in pride. You know, over in First Peter... It talks about adding unto your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and all these kind of things. And then it says if you do these things, it, it guarantees that you will not be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it says he that has uh, that doesn't do these things, it says that he's blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. That must be in Second Peter here. I'm, lo- I'm looking it up. Here it is in Second Peter chapter 1. It says, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. You need to never forget what Jesus did for you and what you were like before you were purged. If you do forget, it makes you so that you're blind and you can't see the future. You you lose your perspective. When you constantly remember that God thank you for saving me, it just takes away a lot of inroads of Satan into your life. I know that there was one time that I was actually struggling in our ministry and we were having financial problems. My board meant, and it was such a discouraging situation that my board told me to shut the doors and close the ministry. It was just beyond help. And in that situation, after that board meeting was over, I was praying and I was saying, God, I'm willing to do it if that's what I need to do, but I just can't believe that this is your will. I hated it. And I was telling the Lord, God, I don't want to be a failure. But God, I don't want to fail. And I had a fear of failure. And because of it, there was a pressure in my life. And I just I couldn't even really confront the issue. I couldn't think about it and deal with it. But I was paralyzed with fear that I was going to be a failure. And in the midst of that, the Lord spoke to me, and he said, What were you when, you when I found you? And I thought, Well, God, I was a failure. <laughs> I, I was going nowhere. I didn't have any plans. I never was effective in anything I ever did. And I said, God, I was a failure. And he said, Well, then what are you worried about? He says, What have you got to lose? Now, that didn't encourage me to just give up and quit, but what it did, it took away this fear that I was going to fail because I realized I went back and remembered where I come from. And I said, God, you know, I got nothing to lose. I was a failure and anything that you've ever given me that now it looks like I could lose. It all came from you. Since it came from you, praise God, you could give it back to me or you can work it out. And when I did that, it took the fear away. I was able to think through it. God, uh, of course, brought me through that. That's been 10 or 15 years ago. And we've progressed, and by the grace of God, I'm still progressing and ministering the Word today. Praise the Lord. But you see, going back and remembering where I came from helped me see the future and helped me deal with the present and, and see clearly the path that God had for me. A person who forgets is a person who's blind and can't see afar off. He can't see clearly into the future. I tell you, remembering is one of the most important things you can do to get a grasp on things. I've talked to people before who come into my office, and they're just so focused on the moment. Maybe they've had strife in their home, and they're just so upset they're talking divorce or whatever, or they've had a sickness in their body, the doctor told them they're going to die, and they get so focused on it that they forget the great things that God has already done for them. I've actually had people come in who had minor, minor financial problems and forgot that God has already brought them out of bankruptcy, has provided miracles, miracles for them. They just literally forgot it. And as they sit down and start talking to me, I remind them of what God has done. And you know what that does? It puts it into perspective. They recognize that, hey, this problem I'm dealing with is nothing in comparison to what God has already done for me. And all of a sudden, it shrinks their problem down to a manageable size. And they begin to look at it differently. Faith comes. 
See, memory is a super powerful force, and that's what Paul was talking about right here. He's been talking about the grace of God. Remember that you didn't do this. It wasn't through works of your own righteousness, but rather you are his workmanship. And so wherefore, remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Man, what a desperate situation. Without God in the world. Of course, the scripture says that God is omnipresent. God is with everybody. Paul even said when he was preaching to the Cretans, I believe it was, he says that God is not far from all of us, even unbelievers. God deals with unbelievers. The heavens declare the glory of God. The, Technically speaking, God isn't far from any of us. When it says that we were without God in the world, it was basically saying that God wasn't having any influence on our life. His grace was there, but there wasn't any faith on our part to release it and make it a reality. So this is just talking about that because we were alienated in our own mind and understanding and our wicked works, as far as the effects went in our life, it was just like God didn't exist. We didn't have any victory, didn't have any power. That's a powerful truth. That's the way that most people live their lives. And he's saying, remember that you were like that one time. Just think what it's like, the privilege, the honor of having God Almighty now know you on an intimate. There are many of you that don't think about it, but you pray to God every day, and God directs you and gives you wisdom, and you've prospered, and you've you've seen marriages turn around and be healed. You've seen children uh, turned around through your faith and answers to prayer. You've seen financial blessings. You've seen healings come. Man, you need to remember what it was like before you lived this way. Some of us take it for granted. This is what Paul's trying to get across. You need to remember all of these things, how desperate it used to be. But in verse 13, it says, But now in Christ, you who were sometimes far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Praise the Lord. Now, technically, what he's talking about is talking to the Gentiles. And he's saying, you need to remember that at one time you didn't have access to the covenants of promise. You weren't God's chosen people. And through Jesus, you have you were far off before, but now you've been made nigh through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he'll go on right here in this chapter and into the third chapter talking about how that there's now one body, and he talks about the unity that's in the body of Christ. But before we go on to that, let me just say that you'll hear people make these kind of statements all of the time and talk about, man, God was far off. Now I'm getting close to God. We'll sing songs about, you know, nearer to thee, O God, just a closer walk with thee, etc. And people describe their relationship with God about how close they are. The truth is, if you're born again, God is within you. You can't get any closer than having God himself indwell you and inhabit you. Technically speaking, the terminology about being close to God and feeling like God is far off is inaccurate. Now, if you're using it in a figurative uh, sense, like he's using it right here, to say that, you know, in a figurative sense, I'm closer to God than I've ever been, well, then that might be permissible. But I do believe that it's important that people recognize that when you feel like God is far off, it's just a perception. In reality, the Bible says that God will never leave you nor forsake you in, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, he's with you always, even unto the end of the earth. In Matthew chapter 28, 
He's always with us. There is no such thing as God coming and going, being with us, leaving us. Our perception gives us that impression because sometimes you perceive the presence of the Lord. Sometimes you feel close to the Lord. But the truth is God is always close to all of us. Now, some people might think, well, that's a minor thing. Uh, You know, nobody uh, really believes that God has totally left them. But I believe it's important. Because when I talk to a lot of people, I hear people all of the time talk about, man, it just seems like God's so far away. And maybe technically they know that the Scripture says God indwells them, but they talk so much about God being far away and I need to get closer to God that in, in talking about it, they actually build up a way of thinking that it's somehow or another God's over there and they're over here. I just don't ever do that kind of stuff. I know that God Almighty indwells me. My perception may change. But I have facts that I base my life on. And uh, when I feel like God's far off, I just say, guess who moved? It wasn't God. It was my perception that has changed. And so I just go back and change my way of thinking. I begin to start praising God and saying, Father, thank you that you'll never leave me nor forsake me. I go back to grace and start putting faith in God's grace and not basing it on my own performance, etc., In verse 14, it says, For he, speaking of Jesus, is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. This is talking about, in context specifically, about Jew and Gentile. And it says that he has united Jew and Gentile in one body, has made us all Christians. You know, there's a lot of people who've embraced Christianity. I believe they are born again, but they don't really have this concept. And they are trying to preserve their religious background. Like, specifically, I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but I can think of some Jewish Christians who are trying to preserve all of their Jewishness. Now, there's nothing wrong with that if they do it, uh, you know, as an individual But there are some people that actually preach that a a Jew who becomes a Christian ought to still maintain all of the Jewish feast days, all of the Jewish doctrines, etc. They need to stay a Jew. There may be some value in that as far as reaching another Jew. It makes you less offensive. They can relate to you. So you might be able to justify it in some of those senses. But that's not the approach that Paul took. Man, Paul... He made it very clear, like right here, and of course in his examples in the book of Acts, Paul literally made a break. He did not try and make people convert to Jewish uh, rituals and relationships. He went out preaching Christ and had people become Christians. And he said things like that there is neither bond nor slave, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free. There isn't Jew or Gentile, even male or female. He says we are a brand new creature in Christ Jesus. Paul did not go out and try and convert people to Christian Judaism, but rather he converted them to Christianity. And the people who gave Paul problems were those who were trying to make all Christians become Jews and adopt those kind of things. That That's not what it's talking about. This here is saying that there are is no longer a Jew or a Gentile. We are now Christians. We are a brand new kingdom. Like it talks about over in Second Peter chapter 2, that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. We are a brand new species of being, and we have been united so that there isn't the distinction anymore of Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ. Those who are trying to make distinctions and separate us is not consistent with what Paul is teaching here. In verse 15, it says 
that when he broke down this middle wall of partition, that's talking about this religious laws. There were ceremonies that separated Jews from Gentiles. You know, there was a wall in the temple in Jerusalem that symbolized this. And it was about five foot tall, and they could allow the Gentiles to come into what was called the outer court or the court of the Gentiles in the temple complex. But then there was this wall that separated them, and the Jews had a sign up there that said something to the effect that any Gentile who enters or goes beyond this wall does so uh, at the cost of his life. He's responsible for his own death. I've got the exact quote there in my footnote on this verse. But, you know, there was a wall of partition there. And spiritually or symbolically, there was a wall between Jew and Gentile. Jesus broke that. And how did he do it? In verse 15, it says that he has abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace. Boy, this word abolished is a strong word. It means to put totally to an end. There is a ceasing of it. This is talking about the Old Testament law, all the rules, the rituals, the ceremonial things that distinguish between Jew and Gentiles, the rites of circumcision, the new moons, the Sabbath, the sacrifices, all of the things of wearing certain types of garments, cutting your hair a certain way, remembering all of the feast days. These things have been done away in Christ Jesus. They're abolished. It's over. Those things, according to Colossians chapter 2, were types and shadows of things that were to come. But the reality is in Christ. People who are trying to maintain those things are worshiping a shadow instead of the person who's casting the shadow. That is not what the Scripture is teaching. And he did all of this for what purpose? Verse 16 says that he might reconcile both, that's both Jew and Gentile, unto God in one body. There's not supposed to be Jewish bodies over here and Gentile bodies here and Armenian bodies here and South American bodies here. You know, a South American or a certain city body, but technically we ought to all be united. There shouldn't be these distinctions. He united us all in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And he came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them which were nigh talking about those that are far off. That's talking about Paul was saying that he came and preached peace to you Gentiles, which were figuratively far off from God, and to them that are nigh. That's talking about the Jew. So he preached the same message and united them all in one body. In verse 18, For through him, Christ, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Well, what a tremendous statement. You know, Gentiles are not second-class citizens. They aren't somehow or another just, you know, accepted in a little bit less than the original Jewish people who were considered the people of God. But we have been united. We've become Christians. And I guarantee you, Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. We are fellow citizens. We've got a new nationality. We need to see ourselves as God's people and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In other words, he's describing us as a building here. I mean, we are integrally united with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about a union here. We aren't just an add-on. 
We aren't like an addition. We aren't a spare bedroom that the Lord put on the house. We are built right on the foundation. We're right in there with the Jews, with all of the people who were considered the people of God. The Gentiles have now come unto the church age. We are a part of the body of Christ built on the same foundation of the apostles and prophets. In verse 21, In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Boy, there's so much that could be said about all of these things. There's a lot of detail in our footnotes that I'm not going into right here, but basically it's just describing that all of the division between Jew and Gentile is over with. Now, Paul was writing this to the people in Ephesus. Actually, in that whole area right there, he ministered in Ephesus for three years and evangelized all of Asia. But the point is that there are Gentiles. There were Jewish believers who were scattered because of the persecution who were involved in this. But basically, he was writing to a group of Gentiles. And the point that he's trying to make in these first two chapters is he's wanting them to see, like he prayed this prayer in the first chapter, of open up your eyes, get a spiritual revelation of what you've got. You are risen with Christ. You're united. You are not second-class citizens. You aren't somehow or another an alien that is being allowed to live in God's country. But no, you've been naturalized. You are now a born-again person. You are of the household of God. You're built upon the same foundation. You are a habitation of God through the Spirit. He's trying to stress that, man, we're risen with Christ. Whatever is true of Jesus is true of us. Whatever was ever true of the Jews in the Old Testament, God's chosen people, now the body of Christ, the church, is that group of people. We are not second-class citizens. He's trying to get us to recognize, to receive this revelation of who we are and what we have. And as he makes the major point there in the middle of this second chapter, it didn't come because of virtue on our own. We were saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It was a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Boy, these are some powerful truths. If you could meditate this and get the real impact of it, i tell you what it would do. It would just cause thanksgiving to abound on the inside of you. It would cause worship and praise. It would take your attention off of some of the menial things that we get occupied with, and it would let us see what's really important. You know, I was dealing with a man today who I certainly don't want to make light of this. I know that his problems were big to him. But as he explained to me the things that were bugging him, they were so minute. I mean, it was it was insignificant. And I have two of my best friends right now who are in the hospital and supposed to be dying. And I've been praying for them. And I mean, it's something that, you know... Their families are going through terrible problems. They're fighting life and death situations. And here's somebody, you know, talking about the people that sat in front of him in church that talked, and it just upset him so much and distracted him. And, man, I tell you, it just really took some restraint on my part for, to keep from jumping up and saying, what's wrong with you? Man, you're letting insignificant, trivial things depress you and defeat you. And here's people over here fighting life and death that are faring a thousand times better than you are. I hope you see the point that I'm making here is that sometimes people take insignificant, trivial things and blow them out of proportion. I tell you, if you would look at what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 2, recognize the desperate situation we were in and what we've now become 
how that we've been united. We've been brought into the family of God. Man, we are the building of God. God himself inhabits us. If you could get a revelation of what we have in Christ and see how how important that is, it would take some of these things that are, at the moment, monumental problems in your life, and it would just, I mean, literally make them disappear. Some of the things that we get bothered over are so insignificant. People think, oh, man, if this doesn't happen, what's going to happen? The world is going to fall apart. Man, the world is going to continue on until Jesus comes. If you don't get a payment made or something, it may not be the best thing, but you know it's not the end of the world. You'll survive. There is life after divorce. There's life after failure. There's life after bankruptcy. You know, really, we just, we make some of the trivial things in our life big and important because we forget how wonderful our salvation is. We need to take scriptures like Ephesians chapter 2 and get to seeing how great God is, what God has done for us, the wonderful things that he's done. And if you could really understand that and get that fixed and frame so that you don't allow it to pass from you, but you focus on it, what it would do, it would make all of the other things coming against us seem trivial in comparison. And it would shrink your problems. Boy, it would cause rejoicing and faith to rise on the inside of you. And I believe that that's what Paul is after as he's writing to these people. He's just praying that they'd get a revelation, see how great their salvation is, and how that every other problem they've got is insignificant compared to what they've already received in Christ Jesus. We're out of time on this state, but I'm going to continue next time, starting in chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, and verse 1. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net, and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.